I don't know if you feel this way. I feel this way a lot. When something isn't working right, and I expect that it should, when things aren't going right, when my best isn't good enough, when I just kind of get to this place where I feel like the world does not work and I want to get off, I feel like throwing in the towel. I feel like quitting. I feel like giving up. I feel like saying, forget this. Why try? I keep spinning my wheels and my work is not, my work doesn't work. My work doesn't work like I think it should. You know, I, I put in time and effort and energy and the, the product doesn't seem to fit with the work I'm putting in. So that's a frustrating world we live in. That's a frustrating place to live. I uh, got a little taste of this yesterday as I was working on the sermon. Uh, I was trying to get done Saturday morning so I could spend the rest of the day with the family. And uh, so, sun, so Saturday morning, and, and I've spoken about this with a few of you informally. I've changed my whole sort of method and approach uh, to sermon prep. Um, and, and I do it on my iPad now. I used to do it some, a different way, and I'm doing it differently now because I'm trying to improve my communication. Can't tell yet. So um, I, I've changed my whole approach, and I'm sitting there on the iPad yesterday, and suddenly something doesn't happen right between Earth and uh, the Internet superhighway that Al Gore invented. And, and it doesn't sync right somehow, and I lose two pages of my sermon. I wanted to cry. I wanted to cry. That's in my notes actually right here on my iPad there. And then, and then a little bit it started to sift around and it started to get in me. And I, instead of crying, I wanted to like throw the iPad. I was just so frustrated. And this is the next picture that's in my notes here. And so I did, of course, at that point, what anybody would do in my situation, which is I went to Dairy Queen. And I thought, I'm going to do what any self-respecting pastor in Greene County should do, and I'm going to fill my emptiness with a blizzard. So, uh, true story, I'm just frustrated with things not working right, and I lost two pages, and I'm sort of feeling defeated, so I get in the car, and yeah, moment of vulnerability. I started driving to, uh, to Dairy Queen, and I think I'm going to get one of those extra large. They have four sizes, 21, 16, 12, and 6. Not that I'm there often. So... <laughs> I'm on the way, and I think, I'm going to get the extra Reese's peanut butter cups, uh, and if it's 4,000 calories, who cares? Well, I get halfway there, and I think that's not a good way to deal with my frustration, and so I think, well, I'll just get the mini. Uh, <laughs> and I get to Lowe's, true story, and I turn around in Lowe's, I think, this is, this is silly. Just go home. It'll all be fine. Don't worry about it. Well, on the way back, I think, you know what, I do need to pick up my prescription at Walgreens because I didn't do that the other day. So let me go in there and see what they have, you know, just kind of see what they have. And so I'm going into Walgreens. True story, this is my thought process. I'm going to the card aisle, you know, where you to go to the back to cut through to the pharmacy. And I think to myself as I'm approaching the card aisle, I know that the next aisle over is the candy. And so I go to the candy. I look at the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It would be 4,000 calories of that bag if I would buy that. So I'm not going to do that. So I get the little you know, package of 210 calories, normal size, Reese's peanut butter cups, put it in my hand, start to go back to the pharmacy. I can pay for this back there and be gone. Well, I, 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 get, I get out of the aisle and I think, this is silly. I'm not going to fill my emptiness with chocolate therapy, even though I really wanted to. So I took it and I actually literally put it back and like for the fifth time decided not to fill my emptiness with chocolate. So, true story. I'm in the pharmacy back there, and I'm coming back. The, 
the far side and, you know, where all the drinks are. And then I'm coming up on the left. I know that there are cashews right here. And I, and I love cashews. And, and so I, I go right here and I look at the cashews and I think this is going to be worse than, worse than the blizzard. So I put those back. I go around to the end of the aisle and I know you can check me on this. Go to Walgreens and check me. You take a left. Right there at the top are Oreos. And I knew that they were there. I knew that they were there, so I checked that too, put them back, didn't do it, ended up with the Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> at that point, I was so frustrated with myself. I, I, I probably just should have made a decision to eat something and go. But I was at this place of just feeling almost defeated because, I don't know if you've been here, it's easy to get there. The world doesn't work like it should. And I feel like my work doesn't work like it should. I put in effort and energy and time into something, and I think it's going to get this kind of product, and it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It's easy to get to that place of feeling defeated or uh, angry and feeling like it's just, why try? Let's throw in the towel. This is something I uh, came across that is the feeling that I had yesterday. I just want to get off the world and uh, go into my blanket fort here. So we're going to have some ushers come and hand out some blankets. And uh, no, we won't be doing blanket forts. But that's kind of how I felt yesterday. Uh, and it's easy to get to that place where you just want to, like, give up. Why try? It's not going to work anyway. Well, the truth of the matter is that until Christ returns, that's the case. You're not going to get what you put in. It's not going to work as it should. There's something wrong and something broken with the world. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Jump to Genesis, the third chapter. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us, but for some reason it is all the time. We expect differently from our work, from our efforts, from our energy. Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells us about what happens after the fall there. And we're going to look at uh, the last part of verse 17, 17c through the first part of 19 there. This is God speaking to Adam right after the fall. Adam and Eve have sinned, rebellion against God. Now the world's going to be broken. And here's why God says this to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, another word there for pain is frustration. In frustration you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. Yesterday at the, at the time when I lost my two pages, I thought to myself, Daggone, thorns and thistles, man. Like I, I thought, Genesis 3, thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. I like this, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. It should not surprise us uh, that we see so little return for our label, for our labor. The fact of the matter, and we learn this from Genesis, is that God created the world so that we would be farmers, gardeners, that we would cultivate a place in our life and in the world where the glory and the goodness of God was made known. That's what disciple-making is. That's what being fruitful and multiplying is. It's, it's creating a, a culture and an environment in your life and in the world and in your work where, where goodness from God can be made known. We're growing Christ-like character and godliness in people. And the primary reason that we don't see results from our work is because instead of 
obeying God in that, instead of obeying God telling us, this is your work, we said, no, 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 I got this. I know what my work is. I'll do this myself, and I'm going to make work about you-know-who. So we shouldn't be surprised that work doesn't work because when we took on work for ourselves, we broke the world. So don't be surprised. I mean, he tells us. We just read it, right? So how do we fix this? How do we fix this? Is there any point to continuing to try? I mean, maybe you're you're a single mom and you are just at the end of yourself and you think, why even try? It's not going to work. I can't keep track of these kids and be the father for these kids at the same time as well as provide for them. I don't know how to get a babysitter enough of the time. I'm never uh, able to, to, to... I mean, that's frustrating. Maybe you are... A student who is taking a full-time load and you're working full-time and you're paying full-time even though you're on a part-time job getting part-time pay and you feel like, why even try? I'm not going to keep my head above water in the first place. Maybe maybe you are in a high-pressure job or have a boss that's super demanding and doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how much time you put in, It's not going to satisfy the expectations for you. What do you do? That's frustrating. That's a frustrating place to live. And friends, this is where we live from day to day. And and before we jump into Luke, remember this. I'm going to say the word work a bunch of times more in this sermon. Work is not about going off tomorrow at 9 o'clock and getting a paycheck for your job. Work is that. But it's also about anything and everything that we do that participates in what God did to make creation about giving him glory. Anything and everything that we do for that is work. So, so for, for you, it may not be a paycheck. It may mean uh, raising children. It may mean uh, caring for your grandchildren. It may mean a whole host of things uh, for you. So make sure you don't define work so narrowly. So how can we have a right view of our work? Let's jump in to Luke 2 and see what happens here with the shepherds. The shepherds give us a great example of what's happening in our work, what's supposed to happen with our work. It comes from kind of a funny place here. You wouldn't think that this is a good passage for it, but it's a great passage for it, as we'll see. Jump in at verse 8 there in chapter 2. Verse 8, chapter 2, and we'll start there. Verse 8, and in the same region, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Press pause. We're going to spend some time here in verse 1 to sort of set up the context, and then we'll jump in at verse 9 and pick up the pace. First, we know here from the preceding context of verse 8 that they're out in the middle of nowhere, somewhere around Bethlehem in the country surrounding Jerusalem. Bethlehem was just six miles south of Jerusalem. The word here translated as out in the field in verse 8 there it says, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field. That word in the Greek is podunk, uh, meaning middle of nowhere. Not really. Podunk's not a Greek word. Don't go off and tell somebody, my pastor said podunk's a Greek word. It's actually Algonquin Indian. So they're in the middle of nowhere outside caring for their flock. 
Now, what do we know about these shepherds? Almost nothing uh, in, in very practical and, and, and particular terms, but we know two things in particular that we need to know. Number one, about them, that they're outcasts. That they're outcasts. We'll get to that in a second. Number two, that Luke loves outcasts. Those are two big, huge things to know about this. So these shepherds here, these shepherds are in the same region as what happened in the preceding context, which is that same region where Jesus is being born. Luke's telling that story. And uh, there's some cool stuff about shepherds we'll get to in a second here. But I want you to see something about how much Luke highlights and loves to talk about those who are oppressed, the poor, uh, those who are uh, outcasts, Gentiles, Samaritans, uh, women, poor, uh, outcasts, and downtrodden. Look at chapter 4 of Luke for just a minute here. I'm going to show you some of this cool stuff about how much Luke likes outcasts. Chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, if you want to follow along real quick. This is a real cool scene here, and Luke loves it. Luke loves this scene because he's a doctor. He cares about the needy. And so in this scene here, Jesus is standing there in his hometown of Nazareth, and this is where he's announcing his public ministry. He's coming out with his public ministry for the first time, and Luke records it this way, uh, and probably just was loving it. So remember, Luke was a doctor, heart for the needy. This is what Jesus says. He's given the scroll from Isaiah, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus quoting Isaiah in two different places in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, talking about himself, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Luke's like, yes. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Yes. Recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke says the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then one of the best moments in all the New Testament, I think. Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Stunned silence. Pin drop silence. Nobody misunderstood what he meant by that. And Luke is sitting here going, the great physician has come. This was the one, the the capital O Messiah, who had come to proclaim good news to the poor, to to upend what we think is, is status and importance in the world. So Luke highlights that a lot. Uh, the downtrodden and the needy sort of represent, uh, the poor represent those who are spiritually humble. And for a lot of places in Luke and Acts, which Luke also wrote, uh, the rich sort of symbolize the spiritually haughty or, or prideful. So that's one thing to know. Luke loves outcasts. Number two, we need to know something about shepherds in general terms here. We're about to read how God announce the arrival of the Messiah to shepherds. And one of the lowliest, the dirtiest, uh, the most despised and vile jobs that one could have in that day was to be a shepherd. Uh, In fact, by the, the nature of their job, they were considered ritually unclean and were often unable to participate in some of the Jewish customs and festivals. And so the community kind of shunned them and considered them to be bottom of the totem pole uh, workers. Kind of a mundane job. Not exactly exciting most of the time sitting there watching sheep and making sure they stay there 
Every once in a while it was exciting if a, an animal would attack, but most of the time it's, hey, get back. Not exactly an exciting job. So don't miss the irony of this scene. This is, this is as big as it gets. Heaven, eternity, God's perfection, infinitude, coming into, breaking into time and into history and into the limits and into this world of sin. It doesn't get bigger than this, so don't miss the irony of this scene. The very first ones to receive the good news of the coming of the Messiah were outcasts. Bottom of the totem pole workers. Pick it up again at uh, verse 8 there. We're going to pick up the pace now, I promise. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping their flock by night. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Lofty angel appearing to lowly shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Think those like blazing white lights that they shine on you in rock concerts occasionally, uh, so that not only are you deaf, but you're also blind. We don't actually know, by the way, that it was a light, but it probably was from what we know in other places in Scripture where it describes the glory of the Lord coming. And it uses this word shown here. So it was probably something like a blazing white light all around. And this is what it says there. Uh, Keep reading verse 9. They were filled with great fear. You and I would be too. You and I would be too. And that's a typical response when the glory of the Lord is shown in the passages of Scripture, uh, if you want to go look them up. You and I would be filled with fear too. But this is what the angel says to them. Get this, verse 10. The angel says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you fairly mediocre news that is kind of boring and won't matter to very many people. Of course, that's not what he said. But don't forget that. We'll come back to that later. Of course, that's not what he said. He said, I'm bringing you good news. Good news of great joy. So don't be scared. Don't be, don't be frightened by this. This is, this is peace coming to you. This is joy coming to you. This is the salvation wrought for us by Jesus on the cross, brought to us in a baby. So, so fear not. God's taking care of you. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Now I want to look at something here about this word, bring good news. This is a word you're probably familiar with. The word is evangelism. This is the verb form of that, evangelize. To bring good news is to evangelize. So the angel is saying here, this is not something to be scared about. This is something to be uh, joyful about. I bring you great news that will be for all the people, even the downtrodden and the lonely and the, the outcast shepherds like you. So here's the good news, verse 11, that the angel talks about. For unto you... Interesting way of saying that, isn't it? For unto you, for you is born this day in the city of David in Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Your Savior, the long-awaited Messiah, has finally come, verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. The angel says, I can prove it. Go see for yourself. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. They'll go check that out in a second. Verses 13 to 14, though, another obvious sign of heaven breaking into time. Another obvious sign of God's intervention, 13 and 14, suddenly, in a flash, there was with the angel a multitude, more than you can count. They filled the nighttime sky, a multitude of the heavenly host. Now, usually, a host of angels is an army ready for for battle. This army has a different battle cry. 
they say, they're praising God and they're saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. This is, this is God making himself known in the person of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This army of angels comes declaring praise to God and peace for those who receive God's grace and favor. Verse 15. When the angels went away from then into heaven, almost as quickly as they came suddenly, when the angels went away from then into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, "Uh, I didn't see anything. Did you see anything? No, that's not what they said. When, When countless angels come to you and they sing a song, you respond in kind. Verse 15. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, an interesting little word nugget here. The word thing there is uh, an important word. I want to show you this little thing here. You're going to have to follow a little bit closely because I'm building an argument for why the shepherds understood. They didn't know everything that was going on now in full measure, but they understood sort of the consequence of what was going on here. Namely, that God and eternity were uh, breaking into time. So this word translated here as thing in verse 15 is the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A. And it is usually translated as word. It is usually translated as word and carries a connotation of uh, being a word from God uh, or a predictive prophecy. And it is... uh, it is a distinctly Jewish word. We call it a Hebraism. It's a, it's a distinctly Jewish word. Now, in the text here, rhema is recorded by Luke in the singular, which is a bit unusual. So translators uh, just have left it ambiguous and they translate it thing. But this thing becomes a word, becomes a saying, becomes the content of the gospel. Luke is going to continue to develop this idea and theme here. Uh, You can see it a little bit here. We know that the shepherds understood it, understood it as a word from God because of the last phrase in 15. It says, let us see this rhema, this thing that has happened, this word that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. If you're going to look up uh, some other instances of that word rhema. It's in 138, it's in 215, 17, and 19. Three times in our passage here, we'll see it. Luke is saying that the rhema is, it's the word, it's the content of the gospel spoken. It's a word about who Jesus is and what he did. So for us here, it's helpful to know, it's helpful to know that the shepherds understood this, uh, this rhema, this word, this thing, as coming from God himself, and so they acted accordingly. Verse 16, they went with haste, they acted accordingly, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. It says they went with haste, which isn't really a statement about uh, the pace of how they went. I mean, it may, may include that, but it's not so much a statement about the pace at which they went as much as it is a statement about their obedience. It's about their obedience. Luke isn't trying to tell us that they ran. He's telling us that they were obedient, that they were faithful. Listen, friends, God 
speaks to and gives responsibility to those who are obedient. So if you want your work to work for the reason why your work should work, be obedient. So when they saw it, verse 17, when they saw the baby Jesus, it there refers to Jesus. When they saw the baby Jesus, they made known the rhema, the saying that had been told them concerning this child. One cool translation uh, says it this way. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. These, these shepherds, these mundane, lowest on the totem pole shepherds were the first evangelists. They are the ones who first spread the news about the coming of the Savior. Verse 18, And all who heard it, it meaning the rhema, the word, the content of the gospel that they spoke, all who heard it wondered. They were amazed. They wondered at what the shepherds told them. So don't miss this. Here are these uh, lowly, outcast shepherds now acting as messengers for the greatest message ever. Listen, think about this. Lowly, unimportant, outcast shepherds, I sit and I watch sheep, shepherds, now are responsible to be stewards of the message of the coming of the Messiah. They went from being obscure shepherds to to whom the announcement was first made to being those doing the announcing. There's a saying that most of us have probably heard. It goes something like this. Find work you enjoy and you'll never work a day in your life. Find work you enjoy and you'll never work a day in your life. I think that's rubbish. Yeah, I think it's rubbish. I don't know about you, but I know every single time I've looked for my work, I've messed it up. Forget finding your work. You will mess up your life's goal every single time. Which is to say that God has given us the work. What the shepherds are doing here is the work. It is the work. If you think I'm pressing the point too hard, read Genesis 1 to 3 a few times. See the purpose for which God created the world in the first place, which is to be workers who give Him praise and glory and thus be satisfied in the here and now and forever. You want to you have an exercise in temporary satisfaction that doesn't last eternally? To which Jesus says, you better enjoy that. Then, then go ahead and, and work for you. Work for you. 
for yourself. Go ahead and work for you, for this here and now only, so that you're safe and secure. Do that. But know the consequences. Luke is saying here, the announcing of the good news is the work. Colossians 3, 23 and 4 is a great couple of verses. I'm going to put on screen that helps us here. God has given us the work. Whatever you do, work heartily, meaning with your whole heart. As for the Lord, who's the boss here? Who's the boss here? As for the Lord and not for men. You can just go ahead and put not for you, not for yourself, not for your purposes, not for your goals. Uh, Trash all that on the rubbish heap. This is as for the Lord, who is the boss, and not for men. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Who's the boss here? God has given us the work, and the work is announcing the good news. It's going to be a painful lesson for some of you because you don't believe me. It's going to be a painful lesson for some of you because you don't believe me. And I promise you, you're going to look back in decades and go, Scott, Luke, they were right. The only possible way that you can be satisfied this side of heaven is to have a life that is about the work of making known the goodness and the glory of God. Then you will be satisfied. Announcing the good news is the work. Then you will never work a day in your life. Now at this point in the story, uh, we might expect Luke to recognize these faithful shepherds, give them a plaque or name something after them. Uh, But he ends our passage as quietly as he begins it with a loud bang. It's a markedly different and quiet tone in comparison to the previous verse. Verse 18 is wonder and amazement. And then verse 19, it quiets down. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary treasured up all these rhema, is the word there. Pondering them in her heart. And verse 20, the shepherds returned. They went back to work. But, comma, but... They were changed. They were different. They were not working for here and now only. They were working for the here and now kingdom of God where he is the boss. They were changed men. It said, verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They went right back to the humble work they'd been doing before but as changed Men, verse 20 isn't a statement about their attitude on the way back home, praising and you know, singing praise songs and skipping along the road. That's not what Luke wants to tell us with that. He's saying these men were changed and their work was God's work. Their work was announcing the good news. Their work was taking that rhema, that saying, that gospel to all people. It was their new disposition their new work. 
the truth for us today is that the mundane becomes meaningful. The mundane becomes meaningful when your work is witness. Which is to say, you can leave this place and go to any and every context on the planet that involves you doing something and it can be a place of witness. It can be a place where the goodness and the glory of God being made known happens through you. That is good work. And don't buy into this ridiculous, this false dichotomy that people like me who are paid to do this are overstating the case. I can't state it forcefully enough. If your life is not work as witness, you will run into frustration after frustration after frustration after frustration because you're working for you. You're measuring as to whether or not you get your return. I said we'll come back to verse 10. I just want to end with a question. Just end with a question here in verse 10, Luke 2. Verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. In the middle of the sermon, I said, (laughs) sort of kidding, fear not, I bring you uh, mundane, mediocre news. It's kind of boring and probably is not going to be that important for very many people. If, if what we've read is true, if you believe what we've read and talked about today, then those around you in your life will be able to translate verse 10, good news of great joy. If your work is witness, if your work is witness, if your work is announcing the good news, then it will be good news of great joy. What will those around you say about you and your work? Let's pray, friends.